Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. It's nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station here in fair and windy Kodiak, Alaska, where it is 33 degrees, humidity is down to 36% at the airport. They are showing westerly winds to 29, gusting to 48, and 10 miles of visibility. Look for sunny skies for the rest of the day. These northwest winds are expected to continue at 35, gusting to 55 today. The high may be 36 degrees. Mostly clear overnight with a low of 26 Northwest winds continuing, but coming down to 25 and then finally down to 15 or 20 after midnight, but could gust as high as 40 tonight. And for tonight, for tomorrow night, snow. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The suspect in the home invasion hammer attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco is now facing federal charges of assault and attempted kidnapping. Police say they found tape, rope, and zip ties at the scene. David DePappi facing decades behind bars. Paul Pelosi is recovering from a broken skull. The future of affirmative action is on the line at the Supreme Court, Harvard, and the University of North Carolina, both defending their race-conscious admissions criteria, which conservative groups argue discriminate against white and Asian students. In the North Carolina case, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson today pushed back against the notion that race is ever the only consideration for admission. How is race being used in this process? You keep saying we object to the use of race standing alone. But as I read the record and understand their process, it's never standing alone. A ruling is not expected until June. President Biden plans to speak later this hour and raise the possibility of imposing a windfall tax on oil companies if they don't boost domestic production. High gas prices are among the top voter concerns. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. Major U.S. oil and gas companies, including Exxon and Chevron, have been making record-setting profits and handing back billions to shareholders. In recent weeks, Biden has asked oil companies to use their profits to lower gas prices for consumers. On Friday, after reports of the company's profits were released, the president said it outraged him. 
His remarks this afternoon come just eight days before the midterm election as the economy and inflation remain top concerns for voters. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. President Biden spoke by phone today with the winner of Brazil's presidential election. The White House says he congratulated Luis Inácio Lula da Silva and praised the strength of Brazil's democracy. Incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro is expected to speak today. It is unclear whether he will publicly concede defeat. After Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, regulators in Europe are stepping up scrutiny of and potential penalties on the platform. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports. Elon Musk says he wants to loosen up Twitter's rules for what is permitted on the site. But if that allows hate speech and disinformation to flourish, Twitter could face serious penalties under the Digital Services Act. That's according to the European Commission's executive vice president, Marguerite Vestier. There is a European rulebook and you should live by it. Otherwise, we have the penalties, we have the fines, we have all the, you know, all the assessments and and all the decisions that will then uh, come to haunt you. Vestier says tech companies that don't comply with the law could be fined 6% of global revenue. For Twitter, that could be a fine of up to $300 million. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Copenhagen. This is NPR News. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the law that prohibits killing marine mammals. There is an exception for Alaska Native people, And now the federal government works with tribes to manage animals for subsistence use. On St. Paul Island, there's a model for how this kind of partnership might guide Alaska's marine mammals and the people who depend on them through dramatic climate shifts. The tribal government there works with federal fisheries biologists to manage stellar sea lion and fur seal populations. I think it's actually just gotten better as the years have gone in. We do have weekly uh, meetings with them and, you know, try to keep up to date on things happening here. Aaron Lestenkoff is a hunter and an island sentinel. Those are tribal members who monitor hunting and stranded marine mammals on St. Paul Island. Federal biologists work only seasonally on the island, but the sentinels are there year-round. Lestenkoff says the changing climate has actually made fur seals more available in the last 10 years. They used to leave in the winter, but now some of them stay year-round. The tribe worked on an update to local regulations so hunters could take advantage of the longer hunting season. Lauren Devine directs the Ecosystem Office for the Tribal Government on St. Paul. She says that federal regulation change was a milestone. This is something that addresses our tribal member concerns, is led and funded by um, our tribal government as, as the lead entity. She also said federal management needs to do more to keep up with climate change, but recent impacts of these federal partnerships have given her hope for the future. After a lukewarm reception, the Southeast Southeast Alaska Regional Subsistence Advisory Council voted unanimously to advance a proposal that would open federal subsistence hunts and fisheries to Ketchikan residents. The board's vote triggers a two-year study of the proposal, which would officially designate Ketchikan as a rural community under federal subsistence regulations. The decision came hours after after hours of public testimony advocating for the change. 
KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. For decades, Ketchikan has been considered an urban area by the Federal Subsistence Board. Ketchikan's tribe has been pushing to change that. Tribal officials submitted a proposal to redesignate Ketchikan as a rural area in May. Trixie Bennett is the president of Ketchikan Indian Community. She told the board at a meeting in Ketchikan that the designation is one step toward fixing things that are out of balance in the community, particularly for Native residents. I felt like I should come here and sing a mourning song because I feel like we're going to be in mourning until we have this balance in our community for our people. Judy Leesk Guthrie has lived in both Ketchikan and Metlakatla. She says the ability to hunt on federal lands would keep her family from paying for pricey processed foods at the store and from having to travel far away for a hunt. It, uh, it, it might take a lot of work to be able to go out and harvest these things, and it might not cost any money, but it's a lot of work. It's sometimes a lot of days away from our families, but at the same time, it means that we don't have to go to Safeway and buy meat or fish. Tony Gallegos is the Cultural Resources Director for Ketchikan's Tribe. He voiced frustration that, with Ketchikan listed as non-rural, residents can't collect ooligan from the Unuk River. Ooligan is a subsistence staple. It's an oily fish commonly used as a source of fat. What does ooligan taste like? Uh, uh, it, 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 we've, we're losing that and that connection. So we're trying to open that up, but even though the fishery has been opened, we are not federally recognized subsistence users. But the council wasn't immediately open to the idea. Councilmember Louis Wagner Jr. of Metlakatla voiced concern for how Prince of Wales Island would be affected by an influx of hunters. Um, this is really serious. It's going to put a huge impact on the villages and especially Prince of Wales. And Goon's Albert Howard agreed with Wagner. He said he was worried about the already struggling deer population on Prince of Wales Island. We're just opening something uh, that we may pay a price for later. But Keenan Sanderson, the tribe's indigenous food expert, noted that even if Ketchikan hunters were allowed more area on the island, resident hunters would be prioritized first under federal law. If federal managers think that sustained harvest pressure at the reduced number, they can and, in my opinion, should exclude people who are not from that area to harvest. But after a parade of speakers delivered hours of passionate testimony in favor of opening federal subsistence hunts and fisheries to Ketchikan residents, the council unanimously voted to move the proposal forward. Councilmember John Smith of Juneau said he'd been convinced it was necessary. And I hear that uh, Ketchikan, just from testimony, that they need this healing. So I really believe this is really important. Member Jim Slater of Pelican says it was the testimony that also changed his mind. When I first read this uh, in preparation for the meeting, I was somewhat conflicted on it, uh, sharing the concerns of, uh, of Louis uh, that uh, as we make more and more people rural, uh, and you know, and the fact that everyone becomes rural, then no one's rural essentially. Councilmember Harvey Kitka of Sitka also supported the proposal. Uh, this is just a small baby step, and uh, it's going to take a long time for it to, to come about. Brent Vickers from the Interior Department's Office of Subsistence Management told the council that the tribe's proposal met all requirements to be considered by the federal board. And so the four threshold requirements are just those four questions. There's not a matrix. There's not a, it needs to contain six of these and three of these to meet this. 
uh, really just comes down to, is the cons- is, was there information not considered? Bigger questions, like discussions about what makes Ketchikan rural and why residents should have access to subsistence opportunities, will be handled at later meetings. The full analysis takes two years, during which OSM will hold a public meeting here in Ketchikan where people, tribes, and organizations can comment on the rural character of Ketchikan. The council wrapped its three-day meeting on Thursday. Rural designation proposals are considered in two-year cycles. Ketchikan is the only Southeast community seeking that designation this cycle. Moving the proposal forward is a big step, but changes won't start happening until at least 2025, when the federal board is slated to take up the issue. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. For the first time, kindergarten and first-grade students in Anchor Point are learning how to play violin at school. That's thanks to the nonprofit Homer Opus. It expanded its violin program to Chapman Elementary School last month with help from a grant from Carnegie Hall and the Alaska State Council on the Arts and the Rasmussen Foundation. The program is inspired by the El Sistema music program from Venezuela and puts violins in the hands of young people, aiming to use music education as a vehicle for social change. KBBI's Hope McKinney reports the school-based violin program has been active in Homer schools for about a decade, and Anchor Point parents say they're happy to see the program expand to their children. Now stick it to the glue, but not don't burn your fingers. Mom, can you hold it still? Three dozen kindergartners and first graders, accompanied by their guardians, wield hot glue guns and cardboard cutouts of violins in the gym at Chapman Elementary in Anchor Point. They're making three-dimensional instruments that they'll paper mache and later paint, and then use to learn rhythm, finger positions, and technique. And maybe most importantly, how to take care of an instrument. Well, I'm making a cardboard violin. I'm going to pretend it's a real violin. Learn responsibility. Learn responsibility. Five-year-old Jack O'Leary is a kindergartner at Chapman. He's here at the gym with his grandma, Sandy. These dummy violins, like the one Jack's making, will be these students' close companions over the next couple months. This is the first step in the school's new violin program. First, the kindergartners and first graders get to know their cardboard violins, and next semester, they'll get their own real wooden ones, which they'll practice in class twice a week. Sandy, the grandma, is thrilled. She says she couldn't find a violin teacher for Jack and Homer, which is about 15 miles from Anchor Point. So this is huge. I think music is very important. He's been interested in music since he was about three, and I don't want him to lose that glow. Clayton Holland is superintendent for the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District. The district partners with Homer Opus, the nonprofit which runs the in-school violin programs. He says when he first became aware of the program, he noticed how inclusive it was of every student, regardless of ability or financial status. Part of that, and the difference it made in them, in their confidence, their leadership, their understanding of working together. I think that was the primary thing I noticed, and I believe that's one of the primary focuses of Opus. Not just music, which is so important in what it does for the brain, but also those skills uh, students get from working together. Opus also runs violin programs at Fireweed Academy and Paul Banks Elementary in Homer, as well as after-school programs and an adult orchestra. Holland says a program like Opus coming into schools is important, especially at a time when school budgets are being cut across the state and nation. 
Miranda Weiss is on the board of directors of Homer Opus. She describes Cardboard Violin Making Day as controlled chaos. Weiss says the goal of Opus is not to create professional musicians, but for students to develop cognitive and social skills. These are the sort of brain and learning skills like perseverance or self-control and, and things like leadership and teamwork. And so that's why we start with the youngest kids, and that's really what we're after, is helping kids become better learners and also better citizens. And then as they get older in the programs, we add skills of musicianship, and we're really fostering lifelong love of music. That seems to have worked for students in Homer. 16-year-old Maggie Mae Gaylord started playing violin at age four. Now she plays with the Bayside Buskers, a youth ensemble composed mostly of current and former Opus students. They've performed at places like the local senior center, hospital, and animal shelter. Gaylord says music has brought her focus and discipline, but also much more than that. For me, music is a community thing. It's a way to connect with people and, you know, play music with my friends and also kind of give back to the community. Homer Opus's mission is to build a stronger community by creating music together. Abimael Melendez is Opus's new string program director. He grew up in Venezuela, where he fell in love with the violin thanks to the El Sistema program, which inspired the Opus model. I was so dedicated and... That moment, I knew that after high school, I wanted to dedicate my life to to the music. He's taking that love of music and is now instilling it in those across the Homer area through the Opus program, teaching in schools and conducting kindergartners through 80-year-olds. We have the responsibilities as a teacher to go beyond in our knowledges in order to provide the the best tool as possible for the student or for the community. I think so. We have a real responsibility as a teacher we are the responsibility of changing life, I could say that. Melendez is teaching kindergartners and first graders violin at Chapman Elementary this year. Opus hopes to add second graders into the program next school year. Reporting in Anchor Point and Homer, I'm Holt McKenney. A small group of middle school students in Ketchikan have spent more than a month learning songs and languages from all around the world. It's not for a grade, just the experience. KRBD's Reagan Miller stopped by the classroom on the last day of the class. Sarah Orzoko's classroom at Schoenbar Middle School has been pretty loud the past five weeks. A small group of students have elected to spend their lunch hour on Tuesdays and Thursdays learning songs in different languages. Pumping music and smatterings of German, Finnish, Korean, and Polish leak out into the hallway. It's the last day of Orzoko's five-week elective, and the students are ready to show off. One show in bar seventh grader, Sarah Reynolds, now knows a whole song from the movie Frozen 2 in Finnish. Finnish is my uh, language from my family, so this one was close to my heart. <laughs> in English, the song is called All is Found and was written by Evan Rachel Wood. Reynolds sings the song for her classmates. She 
says her connection to Finnish culture inspired her song choice. I thought it was kind of a shorter, easier lullaby song to start with, and Finnish is my ancestors' language, and I thought it would be cool to do it in that language since I'm trying to learn it right now. A few other students show off their skills after Reynolds. That includes Britta Brinkerhoff. Brinkerhoff's song is in German by the alternative pop band Julie. The seventh grader knows all the words to the song, which runs more than three minutes. Um, it was just a really catchy song. I really liked it. At the end of the period, Orzoko reminds the students that their learning doesn't stop with the elective class. Even if you just had one line that you got down in these last five weeks, which is nothing, think of it as a starting point. She tells her class that even picking up bits and pieces of the songs is a huge accomplishment. Even if you're like mouthing along, even if we, that muscle memory is really good for you. So always be doing that. The students wrap up their lunch period with a little bit of dancing and laughing before heading out to their next class. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. Insight Daily Radio. From food to fashion, science to tech talk, or for just plain fun, we've got you covered. From the art of all things, here's Lasana Jeffries. Jackson Pollock was an American painter who was among the leading figures of 20th century art and among the most influential artists of the art movement, abstract expressionism. In 1949, Life magazine published an article about him which asked, Is he the greatest living painter in the United States? Pollock is famous for his unique style called drip painting, due to which he was dubbed Jack the Dripper by Time magazine. Jackson Pollock created his most famous paintings during his drip period, which lasted from 1947 to 1950. Drip painting is a form of abstract art in which paint is dripped or poured onto the canvas rather than being carefully applied. Full Fathom 5 is one of the earliest masterpieces of Pollock's drip technique. One, number 31, was also painted at a time when Pollock had mastered the drip technique for which he is most known. It was painted when the canvas lying on the floor, as was the norm for Pollock's drip paintings, and it is among the largest works ever created by the artist. Fans of Jackson often cited this work as proof of the artist's extraordinary skill and technical dexterity. It is considered by some as Pollock's greatest drip painting. Created on 8 by 4 feet fiberboard, number 5, 1948, it's the most famous as well as the most expensive painting by Jackson Pollock. In November 2006, it created the world's record for the highest paid painting when it was sold for $140 million. Number 5, 1948, is considered a prime example of Jackson Pollock's drip paintings and an epitome of abstract expressionism. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisana Jeffries. Insight Daily Radio.
Our hunting and fishing rights are decided by elected representatives who are establishing laws and regulations that affect how, when, and where we hunt, fish, and gather. Make sure your voice is being heard. Vote your values on November 8th. Gunaschish, Goyana. Hi, eh. Paid for by Native People's Action Community Fund. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to Monday. It is the 31st and last day of August, the year 2022. Happy Halloween. The sun rose today at 921. It will set again at 624. That will give us nine hours and three minutes of daylight, which is a loss of four minutes and 40 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record high for this date was 56 degrees set in 1936, and our record low was nine degrees set in 1917. Currently 33 degrees, fair and windy. They are gusting to 48 right now out at the airport. Look for sunny skies today, mostly clear skies tonight. High near 36 today, cooling down to a low of 26 overnight tonight. Northwest winds to 35 today, gusting to 55. Should come down to 20 to 25 tonight, and then finally 15 to 20 after midnight, but could gust as high as 40 tonight too. For tomorrow, look for a little snow, mainly after 5 p.m. tomorrow. High near 36 with northwest winds to 5, becoming calm tomorrow morning. Looking at our local tides, we have a low tide coming up in two minutes here on the east side at 1236. That will be a four-foot tide, followed by a high tide at 648 this evening of 8.6 feet. Over on the west side, your low tide will happen at 114 this afternoon. That will be a six-foot tide in Larson Bay, followed by a high tide at 716 this evening of 12.6 feet. Are you planning to vote in the November 8th general election? If so, your voting location might have changed since you last voted. That's why it's important to make sure you have a voting plan before Election Day on November 8th. Can't make it? Request a by-mail ballot by October 29th or make a plan to vote early in person. Visit elections.alaska.gov to find your polling place and more. This message paid for by the Alaska State Division of Elections. Listen for the Island Messenger here. A little early there, Cheryl. Mariners, here's your forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side offshore. Gale warning through tonight. Northwest 45 today, seas to 17 feet. Northwest 35 tonight, should come down to 25 after midnight, seas 13 feet. For tomorrow, west winds to 15, becoming southeast 25, seas to 6 feet. And for Tuesday night, south 30, seas to 11 feet. Wednesday, west 30, seas to 10 feet. Thursday through Friday, northwest 45, seas to 16 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, gale warning for today. Northwest 40 today, diminishing to 30 this afternoon, seas to 9 feet. For tonight, west wind to 25 knots, seas 6 feet, subsiding to 3 feet after midnight. And for tomorrow in the Shelikoff, variable 10 becoming east 20 in the afternoon, 
seas to 4 feet. For tomorrow night in the Shilakoff, northeast 25, seas to 7 feet. For Wednesday, west 25, seas to 5 feet. And Thursday through Friday in the Shilakoff, northwest 35, seas to 9 feet. The Kodiak Harbor Master is advising vessel owners to check the mooring lines on your vessels due to high winds. So while you're chasing your garbage can around, don't forget the boat. Meetings coming up in the Kodiak Borough include the Women's Bay Service Area Board. They will be having their meeting in the Women's Bay Fire Hall tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. On Thursday, the Borough Assembly will be having their regular meeting. That will be happening in the Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game Subsistence Study Community Data Review Reception is happening Thursday. That's happening at the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge Visitor Center from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game conducted household surveys to update subsistence harvest information for the Kodiak road system for the first time in 30 years. Join researchers from ADF&G as well as Shunak Tribe of Kodiak and the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge for a public presentation of draft findings and other information about local subsistence opportunities. And light refreshments will be served. Again, that's Thursday at the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge Visitor Center, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Next Saturday, the American Association of University Women are having their annual Holiday Bazaar. That's happening at the Kodiak High School Gym, Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. If you'd like to reserve a booth, contact Suzanne at Solenberger, S-U-Z, that's S-O-L-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R-S-U-Z at gmail.com. Be sure to visit the Lutic Museum soon as the ceremonial masks and beaded, beaded regalia that are on loan from the French Museum must be returned in November, and they'd like to see that everyone has a chance to view them before they do travel. These beautiful objects are on loan from the French Museum and were collected in Kodiak in the 1800s. If you visit the Lutic Museum on Saturday, that's this coming up Saturday, November 5th, you can get free admission to view these special items. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day. Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the Midday Report at 12.20. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.